the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's happened again. A fight between residents at a local long-term care home has resulted in death, this time at Bendale Acres. Homicide detectives are investigating and say staff at the home are cooperating. At least 29 nursing home residents have been murdered by other residents in the last six years. That number likely underreports the problem, according to the Ontario Health Coalition. Violence or aggression is often a feature of dementia. Is the problem training or staffing? Libby spoke with Jane Medes, lawyer at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at the Zoomers Advocacy Group CARP, Miranda Ferrier, President of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, as well as Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. Nobody wants to see this happen. You know, my condolences to the family members of the gentleman who uh, passed away. And we have very strong regulations in place, Ontario, to uh, try and prevent any adverse uh, impact on residents. And this is the worst kind of all. So, um, you know, it's it's something that we don't want to see ever happen in long-term care. What is being done to prevent it? Long-term care is heavily regulated, so that's one thing that we have to know. Our system is not broken, it's strained, and that's something that came out of the long-term care inquiry report that Commissioner Gullis put out a couple of months ago. And so what we can do in the system is we need to look at who is in long-term care, because it's not the same population as a few years ago. 45% of residents in long-term care display some kind of aggressive behaviour. 41% have psychiatric and mood disorders, so it's not necessarily dementia issues. In this case, we don't know. I'm not commenting on this particular case, but 80% of people in long-term care do have cognitive impairment. So we need to make sure that there's the training in place for the staff, and we also need to make sure in general in our system that we have enough staff in long-term care. Marissa Lennox, I'm not even sure. Do you agree that the system is strained, not broken? I don't care to sort of quibble over semantics, though I do wonder if the system isn't broken, what a broken system would look like when we're seeing resident, such extreme levels of resident-on-resident violence. We know that over the last six years, it's actually gone up. Uh, it's doubled, in fact. In 2016, there were over 3,000 reports of resident-on-resident violence in long-term care homes in Ontario alone. That's not even talking about across the country. So we do know that uh, these homes are chronically understaffed, and we know that the staff that do that are there, that are working there, um, do not have the appropriate staffing level or the appropriate education to deal with the increasingly complex needs of the residents. I'd like to bring in Miranda Ferrier. So we've been talking about staffing levels and we've heard some, you know, nice words from the government. Uh, You know, where are we at? I think that um, staffing levels in long-term care facilities, it's been an issue. I mean, I've I've been talking about this for going on 12 years now, uh, that the short staffness in long-term care facilities, not having proper training, especially for the personal support workers in relation to aggressive dementias, uh, is a really big issue. Um, I mean, when PSWs go to school, uh, they get trained, of course, in Alzheimer's and dementia, but they don't get trained in the aggressive aspects that many times, as we've seen over the years, have increased dramatically, um, is, is now our current situation in long-term care. 
And, you know, the government, we have had many conversations with them uh, in relation to ratios in long-term care facilities. We believe that if we start with a set ratio of PSW or nurse to a certain amount of residents, that we would see care increase, uh, the quality of care increase, um, maybe better reporting mechanisms put in place. I mean, the, the sky's the limit on this one. We hear these stories mm-hmm. all too often. They're far too common. And I don't know how many times we need to call on the government to take action before something, you know, how many times does someone need to die before the government actually takes action on this issue? Okay, well, that's exactly. uh, that's a, a, a note to wrap things up on. Uh, Jane, uh, do you want to add anything? I, I was just going to say that one of the issues, you know, certainly is that they are far too institutional. So we need that emotional program, which, you know, they do require a lot more staff for those programs. Um, but we also need to look at what are we doing in uh, the homes. I mean, the, the layout of many of the homes is not conducive to the residents' um, well-being. Um, and, you know, we need more programming. I mean, people are bored in those places. And so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help if, you know, there are people who have issues. It's just going to exacerbate the problem. And Lisa? Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, this is not a simple solution. We need to look at staffing levels. We need to look at training. We need to look at the type of model of care and design and all of those things to improve the care uh, of our seniors. But those who are working in long-term care are highly dedicated and homes are highly regulated. So we just have to build on that to improve the system. Jane Metis, lawyer at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at the Zoomers Advocacy Group CARP, Miranda Ferrier, President of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, as well as Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. You're listening to the best to fight back. I'm Bob Comsick. If you want to make sure your hard-earned money goes to loved ones and your favorite charities, listen up. You've probably heard his commercials, but Libby was so impressed with Mark Halpern when she heard him at Idea City, she invited him on Fight Back. Libby, who has a background as a business reporter, thought she knew what she needed to know about estate planning until she heard Mark. I meet people all the time who are very successful or just regular families and professionals, and you would think they'd have it all organized and together. But I would suggest 85% of the time it's not true. They're so busy looking after everybody and everything and taking out the garbage and fixing up the house. When it comes to their own estate planning, they don't have a will. They don't have powers of attorney. You know, most people get their wills done because they have that trip planned to Puerto Vallarta or they've had some sort of life experience. But nobody likes to talk about this stuff. Let's face it. It's sort of, you know, it's talking about death and, you know, planning. And we want to have fun. We want to go to Canada's Wonderland and we want to go to... uh to come down to Zoomers, Zoomer Radio and listen to bands play and stuff. But, you know, it, it, it is really important that people take the time to invest a little bit of their attention into this very important planning because the repercussions of not are very great for their families and their children and their grandchildren and, and charities they might be passionate about. Well, it's also for young parents because the main thing I would have thought that young parents have it, that it, that if, if, God forbid, two of them are killed. I mean, the will has to say what happens to these children. I mean, that's, you know, more important than any money thing. Yeah, it is. It's a very important planning document. And most people think about it only when they have some sort of life cycle event, they have a new baby or they buy a house or, but it, it is something that definitely has to be relooked at. I know my wife and I just did our 
Wills again. This, I think, was our third iteration because now our two oldest children are 23 and 21 and they can be involved in some of the estate administration, right, in terms of being responsible. And uh, it is definitely something that changes, but it, it's something that should be looked at again and again. If you don't have a will in Canada, it's not very good. The government has a formula for how your assets are distributed. And, and th- it is? What is the formula? Well, if, if, if you have, if you're married and you have a spouse and you have minor children in Ontario, you're dying called intestate, meaning you don't have a will. The government says that the first $200,000 of your estate goes to your wife. And then the balance gets divided up between your wife and your minor children and your minor children. Their amounts are invested by a public trustee and it's put into GICs until they're 18 and then they get all the money. So the question is, is that what you'd want to have happen with your kids? Do you want to try to keep the government as far away as possible for your planning? So it just requires getting some ink on paper and speak. Does the government take a cut? (laughs) Well, there's many cuts, many cuts. One of them, you know, just to give an example is we have something in Canada in Ontario called probate taxes. Yep. If you have a house that's in your name only, or you're, let's say, a single or widow or divorced person with your name and just just your name on that property, or you have your name just on a bank account, a non-registered bank account, the government is going to take one and a half percent of the market value of that. If you don't have a spouse to roll all your assets to tax-free, imagine you're a 65-, 70-year-old person and you've got a million dollars of RSPs or RIFs and then you die, the government's going to take 54% of that because there's no spouse to roll it over to. That on a million dollars, that's $540,000. Wouldn't it be nicer to do some planning to keep that million dollars in your family or at least give that tax to charities you care about as opposed to giving it to the CRA? Listen, we live in a great country and we got to take care of things with social funding, but you know, there's just so much tax we have to pay. What else would you like to leave us with? Yeah, I just say that I had a friend, uh, unfortunately, he, uh, he contacted me. He heard me speak at an event and he had a $3 million tax bill. He was in his late seventies. He was a Holocaust survivor and he asked me for some help to be able to do something for charity. So we did a whole bunch of work on that. It was looking great. We were going to create this beautiful capital gift. And I contacted Nick and unfortunately he told me he was in the hospital. He'd had a heart attack. And then the week after that, I noticed the announcement in the the newspaper that he he had died and his funeral was the next day. I went to that funeral. It was a very small gathering. There was no wife and no children. And I thought to myself, poor Nick, you know, $3 million is going to the government. And he couldn't even create his $3 million beautiful legacy that, you know, would have been so beautiful. It's all going to the government? All the $3 million. Why? Because we think that we have lots of time. And there's always going to be an ability to do this. But as, as we said, Libby, don't, don't waste time. You know, every day it's like you only live once, the YOLO effect. And it really is just set an appointment. Give us a call if you'd like. Contact us at marketwealthinsurance.com. We'll be happy to set you up with any of the advisors we work with across the country to make sure that you get things organized in a way that you're going to be happy and get the peace of mind you deserve. Mark Halpern, Certified Financial Planner and Trust Estate Practitioner. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. When the Ford Conservatives came to power, they promised to end hallway medicine in a year. Instead, overcrowding in hospitals has reached record levels. The Ontario Hospital Association says this was the worst June on record for hallway medicine since the province started collecting the data 11 years ago. And in June, it took an average of more than 16 hours for patients to be admitted to hospital from an ER. What is really concerning is what will happen when flu season hits. Libby went behind the numbers with Natalie Mera, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. 
funding for hospitals in this current budget is actually less than the rate of inflation and doesn't meet population growth or aging, which add each about 1% to to the needed funding just to keep pace, right? Just to keep pace with population growth and aging, 1% each, and then inflation is about 2.5%. Right now, funding is 1.9%, so it's less than that. And that means that hospitals are actually cutting services. They're not growing services. And we already had a very serious problem of hospital overcrowding and people waiting in hallways because they can't get up into the wards. All the wards are full. And so people get stuck in the emergency department. Ambulances get stuck. They can't offload their patients because the emergency departments are too full because the wards are too full. It's a very simple Ontario has the fewest hospital beds left of any province in the country. We're at the bottom of the developed world. No, None of our peer nations have cut their hospital beds in the numbers that Ontario has. And the evidence is overwhelming that this is not working and that we can't continue this way. And yet governments continue to have policies. And this is nonpartisan. I mean, it's been repeated governments now of cutting hospitals. What about the measures that they put in place, interim measures like uh, putting, quote, transition beds in places like old hospital sites, old rehab sites, uh, and that kind of thing? They have invested several millions of dollars in that. What kind of a difference is that making? Well, those surge beds, so the numbers I'm giving you includes the permanent, like any permanent beds that we have. Um, the surge beds that they've opened, like, for example, last winter, the government opened, they gave $90 million and they opened, it was initially, they said 660 beds and then they said 1,000 beds, but they were temporary and they closed again. I mean, the bottom line is that Ontario just routinely does not have enough hospital beds to meet population need. And we've talked before about this, but also we don't have enough long-term care beds, so nursing home beds. To meet population needs. So there, you know, the last numbers I saw from the ministry were 33,800 approximately people waiting, 33,800 people waiting for a nursing home bed in Ontario, right? That is huge. And so both of those things compound. I mean, people can't get into the hospital because the beds are full. Surgeries get canceled because there are no beds to recover in. And they get, you know, this is after a patient has fasted and they've waited for their surgery and and then they get called at the last minute and they can't get in because there's nowhere to recover. Ambulances get taken off the road. Like it's very, it's damaging for the entire health system. The ripples are felt across the whole system. It's not an efficient way to organize healthcare. And I think we actually pay a very significant cost for it. Natalie has the highest story readmission rate for patients in the country. The patients are being readmitted back into hospital with complications from their original problem within 30 days at higher rates than anywhere. And we believe that that's because they're being discharged too quickly to try and clear out beds because there just aren't enough of them. Natalie, what would you like to leave us with? The big secret in Ontario, people don't realize, but we fund all of our public services at the lowest rate in Canada, and we're paying for it in high tuitions, in the fewest hospital beds, in the second fewest nursing home beds in the country. 
Like we are paying for it and we need to have a proper discussion around taxes and fair taxes uh, for the wealthy and for corporations and, you know, paying for our civilization so that we take care of each other again. Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsik. We know that cancer touches us all. The latest report from the Canadian Cancer Society has both good and bad news. Overall, survival rates have increased by 8% since the early 90s to 63%. Biggest improvements are in blood cancers. But the deadliest form, pancreatic cancer, is now on track to become the third leading cause of cancer death in Canada this year, overtaking breast cancer. Libby, a pancreatic cancer survivor, spoke with Dr. Stephen Gallinger at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. As the survival rates go up for some of the other common cancers and we're not making as much progress for pancreatic, pancreatic cancer, then the overall percentage or contribution of pancreas cancer to all cancer deaths is going to go up and that's what we're seeing now. Why are things improving so much for blood cancers? There's a variety of factors they were arguing, and I think it's true, that uh, so-called personalized medicine where treatment is tailored to the specific type of mutations or genetic abnormalities or other abnormalities in the tumors, it's been a lot easier and more successful. And that's uh, the simple answer, I think, uh, is what was expressed yesterday. And I think that's true. I don't think that the frequency or the incidence of any of these cancers is changing uh, dramatically, but the outcomes of treatment are improving. In the case of breast cancer, the early detection seems to have helped a lot, and uh, that's obviously primary or secondary prevention would be great for all cancers, but I think most of these survival benefits seem to be related to improved treatment. One of your colleagues described uh, pancreatic cancer as a hard nut to crack. What is so difficult about it? I mean, you know, survival has improved, yeah. but it's still in the single digits. Uh, what makes it so difficult? It's a variety of factors that are pretty obvious to us, and maybe not so much to the public, but certainly to the medical communities, that it's diagnosed later than uh, other cancers. It spreads early, even when it's very small, when the primary tumor is small. We don't have any primary or secondary prevention or early detection uh, methods. And I think the bottom line, at least for many of us in the academic world, is we don't have a good handle on the biology of the disease. And uh, that's what we're all working very hard on, is trying to understand, answer your question in a more scientific way. But the simple answers are what, I, what I've said. And then the other uh, big problem that we haven't really uh, been able to uh, achieve significant results is resistance to chemotherapy. Uh, so the standard drugs that we use, they do work, but they don't work well. And a lot of the newer drugs that work in other cancers, biologic therapies and immunotherapy in particular, doesn't seem to have uh, the same effect on pancreatic cancer as in some of the other cancers. There is some good news, though. Uh, people are surviving longer, yeah. even if not many are, are hitting that kind of five-year benchmark. Yeah, you're right. There's um, probably the two most significant advances in the past year or two since we spoke. <clears throat> One is um, about 10 or 15% of patients do have a molecular or genetic difference in their tumors compared to the rest, and those seem to be targetable. 
So we're we're excited about that. It's about ten or fifteen percent in total. And and uh, I, I, it's probably technical, but what is the target called? So the two main subgroups are what's called HRD, homologous repair deficiency, also associated with the BRCA gene that you've mm-hmm. talked about in the past. Yep, that's about seven or eight percent of all cases, and they seem to be they seem to have a different outcome and more responsiveness to some drugs. And then another group is called uh, KRAS wild type. It's uh, lacking a mutation that we see in the other 90%. And those uh, tumors seem to be responsive to some other new kind of exciting uh, drugs as well. Although, again, it's a small fraction. That's probably one of the, one of the causes or um, reasons there has been at least a single number or two, you know, two percentage differences in outcome. And we think that hopefully will go up a little higher than 10%. Oh, great. Next year or two. And then the other one uh, was a paper, a report uh, of a large trial from France and actually in Canada as well, where uh, chemotherapy was given after surgery. It's called adjuvant chemotherapy. The chemotherapy is not all that new, but the way it was used is differently. And we think it's actually resulting in a few more actual cures, or at least people living uh, three, four, five years after surgery. So we're hoping that'll also uh, move the needle in the next year or two. What would you like to leave us with? The mainstay of our progress really as a community, not just here at Princess Margaret, but around the world, is it really has to be uh, more research uh, into this disease. You know, we, we're not making progress using some of the conventional techniques, and there's a lot of good research needs to be funded. There's an advocacy group in Canada, and there's others as well. So. I'm not asking people to donate today, but I think they need to recognize that basic science uh, is probably the way to go if we're going to make a dent uh, in panc- for pancreas cancer patients. Dr. Stephen Gallinger at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. I'm Bob Comsick. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto called in about violence in long-term care homes. One very interesting aspect, and this comes from a retired physician friend of mine who worked down in the States, I believe, in the state of Virginia. He said, you have an attack like this, and it it doesn't necessarily a murder, an attack of any sort in an old folks home or long-term care home. The person is sent to the state mental hospital. And, you know, maybe maybe the province is just trying to pass off this problem because I wouldn't want to be a worker or a resident where you've got somebody who is violent. And let's face it, the people with dementia who are violent, it's not their problem. I mean, this this is, you know, they can't blame them, but we have a responsibility to protect others. Bill in Toronto recalled his hallway health care experience. My father died in East General Hospital after being there for six hours. When he saw a doctor, he was actually dead. I had to tend to my mother for the next 10 years. He was chronically ill. And I spent hours and hours and and days sitting by her, sitting in the hallway, waiting for care. And you know what it always boiled down to in the emergencies? There's two doctors on and there's like 150 people here. So why can't they staff it up and get some doctors in there? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who talked about violence her mother's experienced in long-term care. 
my mother is in an institution. My mother has been attacked a couple of times, and you were talking oh, about uh, not reporting. They knew who I was after the first incident. Then when the second and third um, happened, I spoke to the director, and I said to her, I think you better report this. And, oh, no, we're not reporting this. You know, they don't. you don't have to be an administrator at one of these homes to report. I reported it, and they went in and they checked the home out. Um, I didn't realize when that happens, the person who goes in to check the home out is there for at least a week, and they keep coming and going as they please, and therefore um, they're going to catch them in the act of not doing or doing what should or should not be done. You don't have to sit back and wait for them to report. You can phone up and you can report, and they and if you're persistent, they will take action. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Kopsick. Jane Brown returns next weekend for a roundup of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. <laughs>